Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Here to tell us about Boston is Marty Walsh. He is the mayor of Boston. Mayor Walsh, thanks very much for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I want to begin by thanking Bloomberg and Eaton Vance uh, for that for for their involvement in the pop celebration. And uh, it's an exciting celebration watched all over the country, and people uh, love the Fourth of July celebrations here in Boston and our city. Uh, and, and we have two great partners now, uh, knowing that these pop celebrations will go on for the next several years and beyond that. Yeah, uh, you know, you've had a busy day today, Mayor. Uh, we also saw that today you announced a major infrastructure plan to improve the way people get around here, including uh, significant investment in uh, commercial uh, public transportation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm actually on my way to do it right now, so they're all wait- the press is waiting for me. But, uh, yeah, we're going to be launching uh, Vision um, Imagine Bo- uh, Boston 2030. Uh, it's a visioning plan for uh, transportation in the city of Boston. It really, it, it, basically, the technical name is Go Boston 2030 Vision and Action Plan. It really is about talking about long-term, making our streets safer, making travel more reliable and predictable, investing in long-term inequalities to make it easier for people to get to work and school and get around the city, uh, making our, our city more resilient to the effects of climate change. Uh, and, and it's a roadmap to our transportation goals. I mean, when you think about our city in the last three years, our population has grown by over thirty thousand people. We have created uh, six, we've, we've created sixty thousand new jobs just in three year period. And if we continue this growth, um, you know we're going to continue traffic and continue people coming into the city. And it really is about a, a, a roadmap uh, in working with the community through the community public engagement process. Uh, and it's the first citywide plan in, in, in a long time, over fifty years. So it's part of our Imagine Boston twenty thirty plan. And we've had um, over the last two years, residents have submitted. 3,700 ideas. So this plan is, is, is based off of input we receive from the public. Mayor Walsh, I'm going to conflate a couple of words, and I want your uh, expert experience uh, response. Immigration, tourism, sanctuary cities, and federal aid. It's all tied in together. Um, you know, the actions of, of, of the president uh, over the last month or so um, there's a lot of different ways of looking at it. Uh, we can look at it as a human human aspect of it, uh, with people being fearful in, in, in cities across America. Uh, we can look at it as an economic issue, but I'll, I'll just say this one, one, one stat. Boston is uh, the recipient of a billion-dollar international tourism industry every single year, um, and there's no way that, that the actions of, the, even though they're geared towards six different countries, that other people aren't looking at the potential of not coming to the United States for holidays. That's a problem. When you well, think of um, in investment, in, 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 sorry, in high tech, uh, we have high tech companies that can't get employees employees here. Uh, they're looking at and have discussed looking at other opportunities like Canada and keeping their offices in Boston, but the workforce in, in Canada, places like that. That's all these problems. In our hospitals, we have doctors and researchers and scientists and medical staff that, that can't, potentially can't get here. It all, you know, there's two ways, the, the fear aspect and, and the human being aspect of it, and then the economic impact of it. 
Well, Mayor Walsh, how concerned are you that the federal government will restrict financing to the city of Boston as a result to uh, your pledge to remain a sanctuary city, despite some of the uh, rhetoric that we've heard from President Trump? I mean, again, I think we're protected. Most of our dollars are protected by the Constitution, so they can't refuse to give us money just because of our position on immigration. Uh, but, But the fact that those conversations have happened, when you look at Boston, uh, when you look at New York, when you look at L.A., Chicago, we go up and down the East Coast, up and down the West Coast, across the country. Many, many of our major cities that are in the same situation as Boston are the economic drivers of the economy. Um, and if the federal government was going to take an irresponsible move by, by cutting back on federal money and affecting these, these job hubs, job generators, uh, it, it would do significant damage to our economy. So. Uh, again, I, you know, we get about $500 million a year at federal aid, whether it's through housing vouchers or housing um, programs or education programs or public safety programs. Um, that money that they're, that, they're, that, they're, that comes into our city is generated in our city by our tax base. So I, I think it would be – it's not a well-thought-out threat, if you will, uh, by, by just threatening cities and towns around America. They'll do Mayor more, Walsh, more I believe – Mayor Walsh, I beg your pardon. I, I, you are the uh, uh, progeny. You're the, the son of immigrants uh, from Dorchester. Uh, yeah. t- speak a little bit about what you're doing uh, that may, others may learn from having to do with homelessness, housing, and education. Well, homelessness, uh, we're, we're doing a lot in homeless, the homeless area. We've housed in Boston 1,000, 1, sorry, excuse me, 1,056 chronically homeless folks, 808 of them are veterans. We, we, we ended chronic veterans homelessness in the city of Boston in 2015, and we have a system in place now. If you're, if you're a homeless vet and you uh, want to get, get housing, uh, your wait is about six months. We have a pro- program in place now working with providers you know, and moving forward homelessness and housing in, in veterans. Our homeless program, we're still working to end chronic veterans, chronic homelessness, if you will, chronic homelessness in Boston by the year uh, to, to 2018, at the end of the next year. Uh, and we're well on our way to doing that, and we're working on a, a better system of care so that we have opportunities to get people when when they come into when they get get down in their luck and they become homeless. We're working on systems to get them back on their feet in jobs. Part of that's through job training. Part of that's through opportunities, which we're working through right. through job training. Uh, so that that all ties in. It's not just homeless person that's that's looking for uh, employment. It's also people that are non-homeless that are looking for employment, retraining people, and, and not just a training program that, you know, you go through a program for six weeks and all of a sudden you get a certificate at the end of it. We, we we're trying to strengthen some of these programs that at the end of the training program that they actually have a job, and we're working with employers to do that. Uh, the other issue I think you brought up was education. Um, you know, we launched a program here called Build PPS to reconstruct our, our schools in the city of Boston. We're planning on doing a, a billion-dollar investment over the next 10 years we're probably going to need probably two decades of investment in our schools to bring them all up to 21st century standards. We have a lot of school buildings that were built. We have about 100 school buildings that were built uh, around the World War II era. Um, that's a lot of schools with old infrastructure, and, and we really need to bring the infrastructure up to 21st century standards. Mayor Walsh, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, congratulations on announcing a big infrastructure plan as well as the uh, Boston Pops celebration of July 4th uh, here, which will be sponsored by Bloomberg and Eaton Vance. Marty Walsh is the mayor of Boston, and we are so glad uh, that he could be joining us.
Republicans unveiling a bill to repeal and replace Obamacare. Here to tell us more is Brian Rye. He's our senior health care policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We are broadcasting from Symphony Hall in Boston, home to the Boston Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Pops. We are here to celebrate and announce our partnership with the Boston Pops July 4th celebration, which will be carried live on Bloomberg Radio as well as Bloomberg Television. And it will be live streaming on Bloomberg. Bloomberg.com. Well, let's talk about health care. And uh, Brian, tell, give us an update on this Republican uh, plan, if you can. And uh, maybe you could also tie in some tweets from uh, President Trump having to do with drug prices. Sure. Well, you know, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I think a, a couple of things, you know, Republicans are, are finding out how hard it is uh, to actually implement health care policy or make major changes in the U.S. You know, the Republicans' House leadership uh, released a bill last night uh, trying to, as they term it, re- repeal and replace Obamacare. I, I think a better term is maybe more repair uh, some aspects of the law. It doesn't repeal the law uh, outright. It does make some major – it would make some major changes, particularly to, to Medicaid, convert that into a per capita cap program that would reduce spending on the Medicaid program uh, in the long term. Uh, it eliminates all the taxes imposed by uh, the Affordable Care Act on the various industries, on medical devices, on health insurers, on drug makers, um, and it replaces the current uh, system of, of providing financial support to individuals with a, an age-based range of, of tax credits. So it, it, is, it sounds a lot like that, and I know Senator Rand Paul's already called it uh, Obamacare light uh, with that. So, um, you know, Republicans, they're sort of, uh, in, they box themselves in. You know, they're going to get uh, criticism from Democrats uh, for uh, likely, you know, a a score that's going to say this is going to cover fewer people. They're going to get criticism from their conservative colleagues who are saying, wait a minute, we campaigned on a promise to repeal this entirely. And now we're just, in their opinion, making tweaks around the edges. So uh, I think this this is unlikely to be what actually gets enacted, if anything does. um, But at least it gives them some insight into what Republican leaders are thinking. Well, Brian, can you tell us who put this proposal forward and what the political support looks like for passing it? So you, there, there's support from most of the main leaders in Congress. I, I think um, both uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell supported. This is coming out of two committees in the House right now, uh, the Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady uh, and uh, the Energy and Commerce Committee uh, Chairman uh, uh, Kim Walden. They they all support it. So they, they've got that. It's the sort of the rank and file who are uh, who are concerned about some of the provisions. And again, this was always going to be a case. They all, they being Republicans, absolutely want to to repeal the law, but how you replace it and what that process looks like uh, has been problematic. Senator Rand Paul, I'm going to let you run with that one. Brian? Yeah. Yeah. You know, Senator Paul, I think, is not afraid to speak his mind. I think last week he was on a uh, on the treasure hunt through the Capitol uh, trying to find this uh, this bill that was being uh, developed. Uh, under explain locking. what happened, because explain what happened and, and, what, and what the the different versions, perhaps, of that story are. Well, you know, so you, you had a situation where, you know, the staffs of these uh, two committees, the Energy and Commerce and Ways and Means Committees, as they want to do, were developing this, you know, uh, behind closed doors. And Senator Paul didn't like that. And again, I think Senator Paul doesn't really like the approach that, that the House is taking with this anyway. So I think he saw this as an opportunity to shed some light on it and, and maybe drum up some support uh, within the conservative ranks. Uh, and, uh, and he did a very good job of that. And I think Chairman Walden, uh, and somewhat tongue in cheek, when they did release it last night, had a, had a copy hand-delivered uh, to Senator Paul's office. 
Well, uh, I want to talk, Brian, about deadlines, because you can't just uh, sort of float something out there and hang out with it for a year. I mean, they have to put something through in short order in order to keep uh, some of the benefits that are currently provided uh, ongoing and keep the health insurers brought into the program. So what is the time frame like and what is the minimum that Congress has to do to uh, prevent a complete uh, dissolve of the current benefits offered? Sure. Uh, and, and that's a great question. So I think the process uh, will begin in earnest tomorrow. On Wednesday, they will uh, have uh, markup hearings in both these two committees, the Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce Committee hearings. Uh, the goal has been to try and get something passed within the next month. Ideally, I think Speaker Ryan has talked about getting something to President Trump's desk uh, by, by Easter, sort of mid-April. I think that's unlikely um, uh, to happen. But by the same token, you know, I don't want to get too far afield in criticizing, you know, the likelihood of, of something like this, um, you know, happening. They're going through what's known as the budget reconciliation method. So that kind of limits what they're able to include. And the reason they're doing this is they're able to get something passed with only uh, 50, 51 votes in the Senate rather than overcoming a, a Democratic filibuster and needing 60 votes, um, you know, from that standpoint. So there's a pretty fine, you know, finely defined uh, level of things that they can include in this. And they've included most of those, uh, you know, with this, with the taxes and the mandate penalties and those things. Uh, but more than that, it's going to be hard to do with that unless they want to go back to the drawing board and start over. But to your point, you know, there's other things that they want to do in, in next year and tax reform and those things, and it's hard for them to get started on those things, on those topics, until they take care of health care first. Thank you so much. Brian Rye, we really appreciate your insights. Brian Rye is the Senior Healthcare Policy Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's speaking to us about the GOP proposal to uh, repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, we're also getting news that part of the proposal would lower taxes uh, and eliminate rules for uh, certain healthcare industry uh, companies, but there also will be less money and less help for people uh, to pay for insurance and pay for hospital visits. So, uh, some of the big uh, insurance providers and hospital systems are now parsing through the details and figuring out what this means for them going forward. Beethoven Symphony number seven, and it is a good intro for our next guest. Keith Lockhart is here with us. He is the conductor for the Boston Pops Symphony, and we are here in Boston to celebrate uh, Bloomberg and Eaton Vance's uh, support of the Bloomberg Pops celebration of July 4th uh, coming up. Keith, I'm so glad you could join us. Well, and, thank you for coming to us. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> made it a lot I easier. Mean, and, and you're known for uh, your conducting style and making music accessible to the audience and, and, and making it uh, palatable in a way that uh, sometimes it might not be. I wanted to start by asking you whether the profession of conducting is changing at all as a result of this era of technology. Wow, that's an interesting question. Not, not what I thought I'd start with. You know, we, we, we live in a proudly uh, analog business in a digital age. And uh, so much of what we do, you know, we, we play on instruments that are 
two and three hundred years old. We play music that was written 150, 200 years ago. Uh, but I think we are we are slowly adopting the technologies of the 21st century. In terms of the digital age, I think it has more to do not so much with the art of conducting, which is still very personal, very kinetic uh, communication between people. A conductor is basically the uh, the intermediary between musicians on the stage, between the musicians and the composer, between the musicians and the audience. And that really hasn't changed. What has changed more are our methods of dissemination of the product. Maestro, uh, the Pim. business, the business of making music. Describe the changes that you have, you, two decades? Uh, 23 years okay. this May. Uh, congratulations. Thanks. Following, Hard of course, to believe. I tell everybody I started when I was 10. And, I was uh, going to say in, in short <laughs> pants. Right? Um, the business of making music uh, involves a lot of different creative elements. Where you play, where you tour, how you reach audiences. Give us some details about what you have found to be successful and how that integrates with the local and the national economy. Okay. Another, another See, it's a, incredibly rich go. question. Um, I tell people when I came here in 1995, when, they, when they, they say, well, it's only been two decades, how much change have you seen? I said, well, I didn't have a cell phone or an email account when I came to become conductor of the Boston Pops. And I wasn't weird. I wasn't living in a cave. I just didn't need those things. And obviously, our lives have been transformed hugely by uh, the various technologies and, and changes in media that we, we have seen. The Boston Pops, uh, it, it's really been the challenge over the last two decades to adapt to the, the new situation. This orchestra became not just a regional uh, brand, I mean, even though Boston is still in our name, but truly a national and to some, to some extent international brand under Arthur Fiedler. And it became that by dint of technology. Um, the, the, it was one of the first American orchestras to record and then recorded extensively. And by the time every house had a Victrola, pretty much every Victrola had a uh, Boston Pops 78 on it. Um, also, uh, he indefatigable touring this orchestra or other orchestras under Arthur Fiedler's command, which passed at that point for the Boston Pops, were out months out of the year playing every Middlesex village and farm uh, across the country. And then, of course, Evening of Pops uh, in the 1970s put the orchestra on in people's living rooms in a way that it never had before. So in the current day, when the idea of moving 100 people around the country on three-month tours is, is it's just financially impossible. It, it just it does the numbers don't work anymore for that. The question is how do we use new technologies, emerging technologies, to continue to find those people who want what we have to offer? And what we have to offer, I think, is singular. This is an orchestra that for 130 years has not preached to the choir. That we have uh, said to people, you don't have to be a, quote, classical music fan to love good music. And we've done that by reaching people on their own level by or, or, or with the things they're familiar with, bringing them some things they may not know. And then them saying, wow, I love that tune. And I never thought I'd hear an orchestra play it. Where do you find the best uh, musicians these days? Oh, the um, one one problem we don't have in the classical performing arts is uh, is a dearth of great performers uh, these days. The music schools in this country, when when the Boston Symphony was formed in 1885, the entire orchestra was German. 
um, because there were no schools of music in this country and there was nobody here receiving that level of a music education. Now people from all over the world come to our shores and come to Juilliard and Eastman and Curtis and Indiana and the list goes on and on and on. Right here in Boston uh, with Boston University and New England Conservatory in Berkeley, we have uh, so many great young musicians coming out that there is never a lack. When we have an opening, we just, we have to, you know, we have to close the door eventually because so many people want those jobs. The problem is, of course, the uh, industry has shrunk somewhat over the last couple of decades, and there are more and more highly skilled practitioners for fewer and fewer jobs. Now, I want to note that you are a feature sometimes on Drive Time Radio, aren't you? I, um, you know, this the the Boston Pops job, as opposed a little bit to our parent company, the Boston Symphony, is uh, it's. It's the outreach arm of the orchestra world, I think, not just for the Boston Symphony, but nationally. And so I spend quite a bit more time talking in venues you wouldn't tend to find a conductor. Uh, I was was saying that I'm used to uh, all sorts of early morning drive time, uh, shock jock radio and uh, all that sort of thing. So you guys seem, well, very, very... um, Refined. Keith, what was the moment? I was going to say, be, care, be careful yeah, exactly. there, Keith, because we're a sponsor as well. Uh, and we're going to be tele, we're going to be telecasting uh, on Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio, and Bloomberg.com. You're going to be able to hear the uh, Boston Pops July Fourth celebration yeah. with the cannons, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, with the cannons Keith, and the stereo was, surround sound. Huh? What was the moment at which you knew you wanted to be a conductor? Well, I'm still not quite sure of that, but uh, you know, at this point, that my alternatives <laughs> are getting us exactly. Um, I was, uh, it's not till almost after I got out of college and, uh, and I wasn't still sure what I wanted to do, uh, started experimenting with it. It was exactly where music took me and I've been thrilled. The money. I'm sorry, I got to keep pressing on the money here because it, as you just described, You're it asking is t- the wrong person. Yeah, well, <laughs> they don't give you enough. Well, but no, but this is the money. That, but that's the point: is you can't now avoid that. You just said right, a hundred musicians. You're not going to move them all around the country. This is expensive stuff. Uh, what do you want to get across to people that may not think that classical music is the way to reach young people with money? Because this is uh, as much about networking, having a great time, being together uh, in a setting where you can build a relationship. Exactly. And uh, as you know, so many of our entertainments these days and the ubiquity of social media and that sort of thing make uh, these kind of intimate relationships in a, in a way a little old fashioned. But at the end of the day, I think music is about community. It's about coming together. It's about exploring something that really touches the deepest levels of our souls and our, our beings. And those things, uh, I think people will come back to those things. I think people will realize that Facebook friends are not really friends. <laughs> On that note, Keith Lockhart, thank you so much for joining us. Keith Lockhart is the conductor for the Boston Pops, and he joins us here in Boston. We're going to take you out with a little WC. We 
are in Boston at the Symphony Hall here. Uh, the Boston Pops made an announcement uh, that they're going to uh, be broadcasting the July 4th celebration. They're going to be uh, performing the July 4th celebration and Bloomberg uh, will be uh, broadcasting it. Bloomberg is also a major sponsor that will be uh, underpinning this effort for the upcoming years. Another firm that is also a major sponsor of the Boston Pops is Eaton Vance. And we are lucky to have with us Tom Faust, the chairman and CEO of Eaton Vance. So, Tom, this is the first time that Eaton Vance has sponsored the Boston Pops, correct? Uh, that's right. This is a, a new new event for us and a new, uh, new evolving celebration for Boston. For the last 43 years, David Mugar has been the producer and really has overseen this event. And just in the past year, David has turned over the baton, so to speak, to the Boston Pops. And uh, Eaton Vance is pleased to be the presenting sponsor for the now newly constituted uh, Boston Pops 4th of, 4th of July Fireworks Spectacular. Can you speak a little bit about being here in Boston and the role that an institution like the Boston Pop plays in the local and, as a result, the national economy? The 4th of July concert on uh, the Esplanade in Boston is is both a major regional event and a na- major national event. Uh, what uh, this represents to uh, hundreds of thousands of Boston and area families is an integral part of how they celebrate the 4th of July, how they celebrate our nation's birthday, but also across the country uh, for decades. This has been a, a part of many families' 4th of July rituals. Uh, uh, Do you remember the first time that you were present to see the celebrations and hear the celebrations? Can't you hear his twang? Because uh, so, um, <laughs> you went to MIT. I went to MIT, and I came here as a college student from Arkansas. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> the first time I came to the, to the Boston Pops 4th of July was during my college career when it seemed a very logical thing for a bunch of buddies and I to go over to the Esplanade and stick out our turf and spend the day in the sun and enjoy the amazing uh, concert and fireworks on the 4th of July evening. And so uh, that became something I did with friends. And then uh, when I had a young family, that also became part of our family tradition as well. So I would imagine as the CEO and chairman of Eaton Vance, you don't have much time to go and stake out a position uh, for an entire day for the fireworks celebration. I'm sure you have... uh, Better, better, better plans and better seating. Uh, but as the chairman and CEO, I, I'd be remiss not to ask you just for the outlook for asset manager, managers, particularly uh, active managers facing the incredible flood of money into passive managing uh, from active uh, investment funds. How is Eaton Vance dealing with this? And are there pockets where active management is starting to attract more uh, away from passive? Uh, for sure. This is a time of uh, dramatic change in our business. I've, I've been at Eaton Vance and been in the asset management business for 32 years. I don't think there's ever been a time uh, other than maybe periods of market upset where there's been as much change in the asset management business as there is today. The primary driver of that, as you point out, is uh, this general uh, f- flow of assets from uh, active broadly defined to passive broadly defined. Uh, but it's not happening uh, uniformly across asset classes, and it's certainly not affecting all managers equally. It it continues to be the case that uh, people are looking for outperformance and that if uh, managers and investment teams can deliver outperformance, uh, there continues to be strong market demand for what they deliver. 
I'm pleased to say that in, across many of our investment strategies, not all of them, uh, we have strong performance not only against other active managers, but also against passive alternatives. So which uh, asset classes are least effective by, uh, least, least affected by uh, flows into passive funds and which are most of Eaton Vance's funds? So we're consistent with the overall trend, which is that uh, the, the flow from active to passive has been strongest in U.S. equities and particularly large cap U.S. equities. And when people, the headlines about active versus passive performance, usually that's focused on large cap U.S. stocks. So what percentage of mutual funds, of U.S. equity funds beat the S&P 500? By that measure, it's been a pretty tough time for active managers. If you look at other asset classes, if you look at global or non-U.S. equities or small caps, but particularly across a whole range of income strategies, the picture is quite different. Uh, there are many segments where Eaton Vance has major business positions where indexing effectively doesn't work very well. Um, it's hard to do indexing effectively in uh, segments like bank loans, so like segments like high-yield bonds, emerging market debt, municipal bonds. All of those are big businesses for Eaton Vance where we think our active managers compete very effectively versus all passive alternatives. I'd like you to speak about custom beta at Eaton Vance and the qualities that come with rule-based investing. So custom beta is, is our term for customized passive investing where an investor says, I want an exposure to this part of the equity market or this part of the fixed income market. But rather than investing in that, in that market segment through what we call a bulk beta instrument like an ETF or, a, or an index fund, by owning the individual securities, you can achieve customized portfolios that have better tax treatment and that more reflect the personal values and, and what's important to the particular client. And that's been a very big part of our, our strategy. As business has moved from active to passive, this has been our way to compete effectively in the passive part of the business. I was just wondering if you could do 10 seconds on just explaining uh, the tax situation. Um, if you own a mutual fund and one of the stocks inside that fund goes down in price, uh, if the manager sells that, the loss that's recognized is effectively trapped inside the fund. You cannot use that loss to offset gains you have elsewhere in your portfolio. But if you own that same stock in a separate account, that loss can be used to offset gains you have elsewhere in your portfolio. Great. Thanks very much. Tom Fausti is the chairman and the chief executive of Eaton Events, about $370 billion of assets under management. And a new sponsor of the and Boston was, Pops uh, July 4th celebration. Indeed, as is Bloomberg. We are the media sponsor, so you'll be able to watch the July 4th celebration Boston Pops on Bloomberg Television, hear it on Bloomberg Radio, and on Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.